Welcome to Dialogues in Afro-Latinidad, a podcast dedicated to amplifying and elevating Afro-Latin American and Afro-Latinx histories, cultures, and communities. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Reed Vasquez. Join us for conversations with experts and artists to learn more about Afro-Latinidad. Venga. I am happy to welcome today's guest, Dr. Zach Morgan. Dr. Morgan is an Associate Professor of History and African American Studies at Penn State University. He is an historian of 19th and 20th century Latin America with a focus on race, freedom, abolition, and slavery in Brazil. Both his teaching and research emphasize the overlap between Latin American history and the broader study of the African diaspora throughout the Americas. His book, Legacy of the Lash, Race and Corporal Punishment in the Brazilian Navy and the Atlantic World, was published in 2014. And it is an examination of the organized resistance among Afro-Brazilian sailors to the ongoing abuse they endured in the Navy at the hands of the Brazilian state. His book's cornerstone is an exploration of the four-day Revolta da Chivata, Revolt of the Lash of November 1910, during which nearly half of Rio de Janeiro's enlisted men rebelled against the Navy's use of corporal punishment. He argues that during, uh, that the uprising is best understood in the context of Atlantic slave rebellions rather than exclusively as a modern military revolt. He has published numerous essays, articles, and reviews, and received an array of awards, including those from the Ford Foundation and the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation, and is currently a senior editor at the Hispanic American Historical Review. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Morgan. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really enjoyed uh, listening, to, listening to the show and, and think you're doing great work. Oh, thank you so, so much. Uh, so you joined Penn State in 2016, but where are you from? Um, I grew up in New York City. Um, I uh, did my undergraduate degree at Hunter College. I stayed in New York after um, after high school because I thought I was going to be a rock star and my ska band was going to hit big. Of Apparently course. that never happened. <laughs> um, but at, at some point I decided that maybe I would need to, to really focus on college. <laughs> okay. And uh, that happens. Did, um, did well and managed to, to pursue a PhD at um, Brown University in Providence under the uh, mentorship of Tom Skidmore. Oh, wow, great. So then given all of that, um, and knowing Brown's reputation and, and Skidmore's reputation, that Professor Skidmore's re reputation, what sparked your journey into studying uh, the experiences of Afro-Latin Americans, Afro-Brazilians in particular, aside from the ska music? Sure. <laughs> um, you know, I came to, to Latin American history kind of from a, a sideways tangent. Um, I, I went to Bronx Science, which mm -hmm. is probably one of the few high schools well known enough that I can just cite it and, you know, just drop that. Um, and I was really good at physics. I loved, I loved physics, um, but hadn't gotten into the kind of really advanced math line that one needs to really enjoy physics. So mm -hmm. when I got to college, um, they kind of at, at, you know, what is an urban school, which is not perhaps as prestigious as um, some other colleges in, in, in the country, they looked at my background and said, oh, yeah, go ahead and take the advanced physics alongside of the math courses and you'll be fine. Like you, you came from a strong math and science background. Mm -hmm. And so I had a real crash and burn moment at the second semester of oh. freshman year where I was, you know, dropping classes and worried about failing things. Um, and suddenly had to kind of reorient my academic goals. Um, yeah. And I, I spent some time just exploring classes I heard good things about. Like I didn't have an agenda suddenly. I was like, okay, I'm not going to be a great physician. Mm -hmm. um, 
or physicist, really physician. I don't even know the word. <laughs> um, so I took, I took classes that, that friends had liked and that I'd heard good things about. And I wound up um, in what is now called the Africana Studies Program. It was the Black and Puerto Rican Studies Program then. Mm -hmm. And I really kind of split classes between history and literature. Um, mm -hmm. And as I went through and was completing that degree, I began to think about graduate programs and thought, you know, am I going to go to a lit program and am I going to go to a history program? Um, and in retrospect, I should have thought about American studies and African-American studies programs that awarded doctoral degrees, but I didn't. Um, so when I decided I was going to focus on history, I was kind of scrambling to complete enough credits to finish a double major, right? So I had most of my AFM major done. Mm -hmm. And so I was taking history courses that sort of fit my time schedule. And I, and I was planning on doing U.S. scholarship on slavery. Okay. So but I was fortunate. Yeah, um, but I was fortunate to wind up in, in Michael Turner's Modern Brazil course. There are other people who I think helped shape this as well. Um, there was a, a um, human rights minor that I was doing. So I'd taken some Central America courses with um, Josh DeWind who, who and, and so it wasn't only Michael. Um, and as well as some interesting African um, history courses, but his Modern Brazil course really opened my eyes. He was an amazing teacher but he was a lifelong, lifelong activist um, and, and an early supporter of what we now call Afro-Latin American studies. Mm -hmm. um, he, as an African-American man, was, was an Africanist as an undergraduate at Yale. Um, but his doctoral dissertation at, at, at Boston University focused on, what was it? Um, former slaves who returned from Brazil to the African kingdom of Dahomey. Right. Ah, it was yes. a groundbreaking study. It was called the in French. I won't even do the accent accent, but it was called like uh, uh, the Brazilian, right? Okay. Brazilian, mm -hmm. whatever. Um, and and it was incredible. Now, I didn't, I didn't read it until later, but, you know, he was working on free slave populations, right? Because the slaves who were returning from Brazil in the 18th mm -hmm. century were people who had negotiated their own freedom. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a really groundbreaking study of empire and colonization and the port and, and, and his work should fit more into the research on Liberia and Sierra Leone and the kind of neo-colonial constructions that happen when, when Americanized slaves, whether it's Latin America or North America or Britain, repatriate to Africa. Mm -hmm. um, that's, a, that's great. I mean, it's amazing. I think, it's, I think also partly in doing this is to give uh, to share with those who, who are, are the professors and other scholars who we work with in undergrad and graduate school, to know that they, it did mean something. It had it did, permeated our being. It helped inspire. Yeah, us. like we didn't, and, and we, but we didn't like write it. Neither did neither did read. Like the, the this these are ideas that have been percolating for a really long time, and that the mm -hmm. kind of recent interest in something that's structurally called Afro Latin America didn't start it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, so I'm getting at kind of the, the, the pieces that influenced you and certainly your passion about what's what it has evolved to be race and freedom and citizenship, especially as applied to Brazilians and other Afro-Latin Americans. So tell us a bit more about uh, what drew you to this area. We were talking a little bit earlier, but I, you can certainly share this with us. Sure. Audience. I mean, uh, you know, it's funny. I'll, I'll go back. My first project, like in, in retrospect, you can kind of weave it together and say like, oh, it's all really linear, right? Like Michael worked on free black populations and then he kind of handed me off to Tom Skidmore um, who wrote um, Black into White. Mm -hmm. um, 
and and the ideas about race in Brazil thus bring me to this first project using the Navy as a sort of institution through which you can view race when race has been ignored by the state, right? Like when Brazil stops recording race in its documents. Um, and, and again, to, to reference back to, to George Reed Andrews, um, his Black and Whites was like a, a model for me. I was like, oh, like you can write about this time frame. I mean, that book goes from like 1888 to, to 1988. Yeah. And this is the whole time that Brazil stopped recording race. And so I was like, oh, this can be done, right? There are ways that one could can, can study these things in, in modern Brazil. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I went down to Brazil probably my second summer of graduate school. My first summer I'd gone to Wisconsin to do the foreign language program. Hunter didn't have a Portuguese language program. So I, I studied Spanish and I'd mm-hmm. um, done coursework, but then also went to Guatemala and did some kind of advanced language courses, which is sad considering how rusty my Spanish is now. Um, <laughs> but um and and of course in retrospect i was you know i was somewhere with faculty at columbia and they were like oh there's a consortium of language you could have taken portuguese at columbia and i was like oh wow darn i wish i'd known that <laughs> um but so i started um my portuguese language study the after my first summer of um of graduate school and then i was down in brazil and i had my you know my 15 page description of what I wanted to do. And it was like social mobility in the Brazilian army. And I thought like, here's an institution with records. And um, Sachido, the archivist at the National Archives said, you might want to talk to that guy over there. His name's Peter. Like, it sounds like he's just finishing a project that sounds a lot like what you just described to me. And um, yeah, Peter Beattie, who wrote like, oh, a, wow. a okay. groundbreaking book on, yes. on the Brazilian army, like took me out for lunch and drinks and explained that my project was his project and that I needed to come up with something oh, entirely no. different. Oh no, oh my goodness. <laughs> um, but the, the funny thing is he said, um, you know, maybe you should think about the Navy because um, their archive is air conditioned and they never took over the state. So they're much less restrictive with what you're allowed to see. Which wasn't entirely true, but like, but but yes, in the right direction. The framing of my the framing of my research is really about air conditioning in the archive. Uh, Hey, (laughs) I I feel you on that. That's that is no joke in Latin America and the Caribbean. (laughs) Absolutely. But um, uh no, go ahead. No, no, no. Finish your thought. So you know, I I I thought on the ground and I learned about the the Hibalta de Shibata, the the legacy, this this revolt that took place in 1910. And again, it, it worked in like my interest in post-abolition and kind of understanding freedom in the context of slavery. Um, I, I feel like I was still pretty green even as I wrote that book because I think today my critique of scholarship on race and, and is that the U.S. and its models of segregation and Jim Crow and and post-abolition kind of uh, activism is too heavily applied in Latin America, right? That, that, you know, you look at the U.S. and abolition means a huge amount. Not Again, I'm not saying abolition doesn't matter in Latin America. Obviously, the movement towards abolition is hugely important. But if you look at the free Black population in the United States, it was tiny. Yes. You know, in the North, it was maybe one or 2%. And in the South, it was a fraction of a percent um, after 
independence and before the Civil War. Um, and so at the moment that the Civil War was won, and again, I, I'm, I'm kind of flashing over the, 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 the Emancipation Proclamation and who it didn't or did apply to, but mm-hmm. you suddenly have 4 million enslaved Americans who have um, been kind of treated as a factory production itself, right? The Chesapeake has become a way of, uh, of breeding and selling slaves to support the expansion of the, the, the cotton economy. Um, you have 4 million slaves with almost no free black population freed at once. And so when we think about abolition in the US, it's a defining moment, right? Reconstruction, right. abolition, the creation of police, the creation of a kind of a system to control free black people. Mm-hmm. And so when you take that to Latin America and you see, um, you know, the, the audience in Cuba where, you know, the majority of black people were free before the abolition of slavery or the independence of Cuba, where you go to Brazil and in 1800, free blacks represent a plurality of the population. Mm-hmm. Um, it should have made me think, and it should have made a lot of scholars think like, maybe abolition and post-abolition aren't the right framing features for understanding mm-hmm. race and nation in these countries. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead, I went there with this model of abolition and post-abolition um, and used this kind of post-abolition event as a way of understanding how black Brazilians in the early 20th century were still being treated like slaves. Um, when in fact, really black Brazilians were being treated the same way free black Brazilians had been treated since the 18th century, right? Like right. There, there wasn't right. this moment of change. There was a long tradition of control of free black populations. And, and it took until, you know, I get it that while I was writing the book, but it took me a really long time to understand that, that the Navy is just a small piece of the control of free mm-hmm. black populations in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm thinking about that, especially your work as a scholar, but also as an educator, how do you kind of convey this to your students? How do you help them understand Afro-Latin American countries, these histories, the politics, issues of freedom? I mean, because the, the they're distinct in, in so many ways from the US. And I know I, in my teaching, I always have to explain, okay, let me say it again. <laughs> this happened this way. This is what's going on, on over here. And let's, you know, think about what you what you know about the US and then let's let me unravel it. Let's unravel yeah. it for Latin America. Yeah, I mean, the, the demographic is a great place to start, right? And and I, you know, somewhere yeah. I have these numbers for Cuba and Venezuela as well, but I, I know them pretty well in Brazil, mm-hmm. which is that you've got, you know, these massive populations of slaves who are brought into Brazil, right? In the US, um, 450,000 slaves over the history of the US. Right. Enslaved Africans were brought um, brought to the US either directly or through the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Um, and that population kind of becomes a population of nearly 4 million people um, yes. between the, the, um, the establishment of a free nation, which like we see in other places kind of drives um, the abolitionist movement. Like when, when black people fight in wars for the country, they often mm-hmm. gain benefits. And actually, I'll come back to that, too, because I think there's a little problem. There's a problem with the way that we use that idea of freedom of of, uh, yes. of soldiers. Um, but in the United States, you have a very different model. Um, and even though enslaved people fought in the wars of independence um, and on the side of Great Britain and some on the side of, of, of the colonies, um, it doesn't it leads to a kind of a doubling down and retrenching of slavery um, to, to, to support 
the cotton economy, which is just exploding and industrializing the world. Mm -hmm. um, in Brazil, you have very different numbers, right? You have the fact that um, generally enslaved populations can't naturally reproduce themselves, right? You've got this long-term commitment to importation, um, but you also have this incredibly large free black population um, that, that really defines what the state looks like. Um, and I mean, I guess, uh, I'm, I hope I'm answering the question. I feel like I've kind of lost the, the thread of what you asked, but- um, Well, just trying to, trying to get a little bit at- Oh, how, how, you, how you kind of get, get students to understand this, right? Yes. So when you, when you pull up those demographic numbers and put a table up, I think they can say like, wow, that's really different. That's really different from my understanding. Um, you know, what we understand of slavery. And it used to, I used to, when I started teaching a million years ago, I was like, well, you know, all students know about slavery is roots. Now, students have never even heard of roots. Mm, I, <laughs> if, yeah. if we're lucky, they might've seen, uh, you know, 12 Years a Slave or, or, or Django Unchained. Right. Maybe not right. the best representations of slavery in the US uh -huh. either. Um, so I, I guess what I've learned as a teacher is to not expect a whole lot of understanding of US slavery. So mm. if you go in with a book like, you know, I think about um, Baptiste or Baptist, I always mis mispronounce Ed's last name, making it Latin American. Ed Baptist book on, on half the story has not been told. Um, I think it does such a remarkable job looking at what really is exceptional about the US as a jumping off point to then move into Afro-Latin America and see how much difference there is in the, in, in, in the procedure. I think that's one way of dealing with it. Um, yeah, I guess I'll stop yeah. there. I could probably go on. <laughs> okay, well, and so think, so then shifting a little bit to kind of more contemporary uh, issues, what would you think, what would you say then are some of the most urgent issues for Afro-Latin American communities today, especially as they relate to uh, the work that you do? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that there is a sort of a disconnect between the research that I do in the 19th century and what I think is happening in Brazil now. Um, but I think that the two kind of activist movements that I think are really important to understand are the, the, um, the landless movement in Brazil, um, the fact that um, the violent response to people who are squatting on lands, these populations that in a kind of a comparison or a reflection of the United States, um, these uh, massive, populations of Afro-Brazilians who have really purposefully been disabled since the mid 19th century to claim and retain land, right? Like the, the, the legislation at the same time the United States in what was applied in a very racialized way said, if you go out and modernize the landscape, if you go West, you can have a parcel of land. And then they only let white people do it, right? But still this idea was that if you went out and, and modernized the land, the land would become yours. In Brazil, they passed legislation that said exactly the opposite, that said in 1850, they said, um, if you don't have a receipt, it's not yours, regardless of how long you've been on it. If you don't have a deed, that is not your land, whether you've modernized it or not. And the only people who can get land are giant rich, landowners, sure. also white. Um, and so there's this pattern which has led to really measurable outcomes of, of landlessness and, and forcing um, free black people into wage labor or some sort of labor which is, which is entirely disconnected from the possession of land. And then secondly, I would say that the education movement 
um, the movement to, to prepare Afro-Brazilian students for the vestibulate, the, the, the dialogue around affirmative action, which I think was remarkable. I was always, um, <clears throat> I always remember when uh, I was down in Brazil and Tom Skidmore was down there and he was sort of a celebrity in Brazil. He would go on the Fausto show and they would interview him. And I was like, there aren't many historians who, who get treated like this in the United States. <laughs> no. um, but he was, he had a bit of celebrity. So um, uh, Fausto was asking him what he thought of um, the, the kind of growing affirmative action movement that was taking place. I guess this is about 20 years ago. And Tom said, you know, if you, He's like, the, the amazing thing about historians is how bad they are at predicting the future. Because like we can draw on the past, but I was asked many times if I thought there was any future for affirmative action in Brazil. And I thought, no way. And so that was such a breakthrough moment. And it's of course raised the ire of many, both conservatives and white liberals who are like, we're, you know, we're, we're parroting the United States. We're doing these things that don't need to be done. There's no racism in Brazil. Mm -hmm. But um, the idea that there's a single test that is going to separate, you know, there's no letters of recommendation, there's no application process, there's a test, the vestibulata, and the private schools and the white schools in the country spend their entire time from like pre-K to what would be 12th grade here preparing students to take this test. And so you have the irony of incredibly white private schools and incredibly black public schools who filter students into a test which allow all of the white students to go to the best public schools and private schools become the only available recourse for for college education for many for many black students and so you know there's other things there's a million things i mean you know the pol policing and prisons i mean um, so much of the control of of people is still represented in the institutions in brazil mm -hmm. But I think these are the most kind of pressing issues yeah. to deal with in Brazil. And I think that that's true largely throughout Latin America. Yeah, certainly the, the disparities you described with the, for the education and, and uh, regardless of the affirmative action piece, I mean, all of it, there's just, there's so much going on. Yeah. Uh, I think, as you said, and as you point out, uh, it's very much kind of a hemispheric kind of an issue. Uh, and kind of our kind of we have we're running out of getting to the last bit of our time here. So okay. I wanted to, to, uh, to talk a little bit about uh, resources. So uh, in addition to your book, Legacy of the Lash, Race and Corporal Punishment in the Brazil and the Atlantic World, what other kinds of resources would you recommend for our listeners who'd like to learn more about this topic or these communities? Sure. Um, you know, it's, it's always hard for me because I'm like, oh, there are these books that I've liked or that I've read and and and. You know, I know that it's hard to, to get people to read, to get students to read books. I think books are hard for, even for scholars. Um, so the, the study that I worked on, the Hevolta de Shibata, I wrote um, a peer-reviewed article for um, the Oxford Research Encyclopedia of Latin America, the Brazil edition. It's called the Hevolta de Shibata, Conscription, Corporal Punishment, and State Control of Free Afro-Brazilians, um, which kind of ties together the two, the two projects. Um, and I also just published, well, just had something accepted that'll be out shortly in the Journal of Black Studies on um, Abies Nascimento and the origins of Afro-Latin America, which I think tries to focus things more on Brazil. Um, and so, you know, both of those, I think, are, are, are things that I've produced that I think give a sense of how I'm thinking about Afro-Latin America. Oh, great, great. I can't wait to see that. Thank you for sharing that. What's your next project? All right. So, oh, so... Um, 
I'm actually working on, as, as any good scholar will say, I'm working on two projects, right? Of course. And so the first, um, which is which is tentatively titled, and we'll see what the press says about that, um, the abolition, abolition myth, um, which kind of raises some of these issues about freedom and liberalism and, and, and how we understand um, the Afro-Brazilian population to exist as free people, um, is gonna look at kind of patterns under the Portuguese empire um, in as much as like how they populated their empire, right? They, there's a long history of using criminal activity, and these are codes that were written in the 15th and 16th century, to um, criminalize poverty and then send those people out into as, as Africa and then the America, Americas and, and, and India um, became part of the, the continent. They were able to kind of turn poverty into labor, right? But uh -huh. of course it's all white people. <laughs> um, and slaves are from the time that, you know, you've got ships running down the African coast, bringing um, a large number of slaves back into Portugal and, and Spain. Um, that model, that model of kind of a disregard for poverty, I think is, it goes a lot further towards understanding what happens in Brazil um, because the policies of orphanages, right? There's the, the, there's like a rotating door in the street of orphanages, which allow children to be anonymously put into orphanages, these hodos. Um, and any child who's put into one is free, right? And so there is this, and you know, this this is like um, H.R. Russell Wood stuff on, on, on orphanages. And so there's this kind of way in which black children become the responsibility of the state in under freedom, but not really under freedom. Uh, you know, there's a fascinating study um, that I just forgot the name of where, as cotton blows up in the in the north, and most of the slaves have already moved on to to support coffee. Um, there's this scramble for to attack single mothers through the criminal justice system and say that they're unfit parents, so that uh, white landowners can appropriate their children and put them work in, co right. in, in cotton fields. Um, and as I mentioned before, the land laws, um, labor contracts, which which basically said if you want to shift um, bosses, you need to reimburse your former boss for the entire season you paid for before that hand. And so we see the kind of debt slavery um, exactly. being, being established. And then, you know, the word um, conscription, recruit to, to recruit for the military, and the United States doesn't inherently mean violently recruited, but the term recruit, uh, to be recruited in, in Portuguese means to be arrested and forced into the military. There's no yeah. real word for volunteering. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's no, you know, of like 1700 people who I have records of joining the military in the mid 19th century, less than 2% actually volunteered. This is all about stealing people off of the streets. Yeah. And so the documents I'm looking at now, letters that were sent to the minister of the Marines, um, you know, it's an interesting pattern. So many of them are like, my son was arrested. You know, my minor son was arrested. And then I find out that he was just turned over to the military or my husband was arrested and he's not eligible to be recruited because he's got a wife and a child, but he wound up military. And of course, the other interesting thing is that people who are like, you conscripted my slave and that's my property and I need him mm. back. Right. There's a lot of that. Um, on the other hand, there's also people who are so poor that they're asking to asking for spaces for their children to join into the apprenticeship schools or into the into right. the Navy. 
there is a payout for that sort of thing. So the project is trying to tie together a broader understanding of legislation, institutions like orphanages, um, looking at police policies, arrest records, military conscription, again, kind of returning to where I started with my study of the Brazilian Navy, Mm -hmm. to understand why being free is one, not very protective, and two, not threatening to the government. The way that like becoming free in the US was seen as a threat to the system of slavery. Mm Free Black people in Brazil had a very specific role that they played, the manipulation of their labor, their use in the military, um, and that connection to freedom um, was very ill-defined, right? Yes. Just in a sentence, Mm -hmm. the second book is a broader study of free Black people in Brazil, right? Like, to not not just how they were controlled, but to do a to do a bigger history that kind of builds on that into a better understanding of, of free blacks in Brazil. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to it because you know I, that's my the, that whole freedom within enslavement uh, is definitely a big piece for me as well. So I look forward to that. And unfortunately, we are out of time because like, we could definitely talk. Uh, Can I say just one more thing? Of course. That I wanted to, um, the one thing that I've found to be maybe the most remarkable teaching tool, and it's just out, I think a lot of people are going to be looking at is Raul Peck's new documentary on HBO. Have you seen Exterminate All the Brutes? No, I have not. It is an incredible examination of um, Holocaust, of violent extermination of people, slavery, but also kind of understanding colonization and capitalism. And it's it's made me rethink kind of how I'll how I'll teach my Western Civ course. Mm-hmm. Um, it does an incredible job with like Leopold and the rubber extraction from from the Belgian Congo, mm-hmm. um, and 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 it also does an incredible job talking about the rise of white power in the United States. So um, you know, as I shift away from books and I try to use more articles and I try to use more kind of video things in my classes to keep mm-hmm. students engaged, I, I feel like this is a really powerful tool. It's very um, professional and very clean and very well thought out. Oh, great. That's great to know. It's all, I'm always happy to hear about uh, visual resources because it's, that's, you know, you can tell, you can do the lecture, but yeah. they can kind of see, visualize it. That's when it often bec- comes alive for the students. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. And for sharing all of your research and the work that's been going on and your story and your passion for Afro-Latin American studies and history, it's been a fantastic pleasure. So thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. I, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to the rest of the series. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Dialogues on Afro-Latinidad, please subscribe to our podcast and tell a friend. For links to the resources mentioned in the interview, visit our website at michellereedvasquez.com forward slash podcast.